21 years ago, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that national adult cases of syphilis had reached their lowest levels ever. For babies, it was dropping fast, and health officials looked to eliminate the disease among newborns altogether. But syphilis cases have risen dramatically over the past decade for both adults and infants alike. And the COVID-19 pandemic has made things even worse. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, October 21st, 2021. Today, I speak with my colleague, Emily Alpert Reyes, about this disturbing trend. And we hear from someone who had a stillbirth because of syphilis and wants everyone to learn from her story. Syphilis cases were already surging nationwide before the arrival of COVID-19. Then the pandemic hit. Clinics that screened people for sexually transmitted diseases closed. Health workers who focused on syphilis cases were reassigned to COVID-19 duties. It's a maelstrom that allowed syphilis to explode. There's a way out of this epidemic. Syphilis is curable. And if we can get more pregnant people tested and treated in time, that'll protect their babies too. So are we going to do it? Emily Alpert Reyes covers public health for the Los Angeles Times and has covered this issue. Emily, welcome to the Times. Thanks so much for having me. Remind us of what syphilis is and why it's so dangerous. So syphilis is a bacterial infection. Um, It's usually sexually transmitted. It can cause sores, and if it's not treated, it can become much more serious. It can eventually affect your internal organs and your nervous system. And it can be extremely serious for babies who can be infected with it in the womb if the pregnant person has syphilis. So it increases the risk of stillbirth, as well as neurological problems, bone deformities, blindness potentially. And it can also make it uh, more likely that a baby um, contracts HIV if the mother is HIV positive as well. The thing that is so galling about this to health professionals is that this is a preventable problem. Um, This is not a medical mystery where, you know, we're puzzling through how to deal with this. This is an extremely treatable illness. And the fact that it's persisting this way really points to some of the shortcomings of our health system. In the 1990s, the CDC launched a national plan to eliminate syphilis, and cases went down dramatically from their heights all the way back in the 1940s. But what do the numbers show now? So syphilis has really resurged over the past decade and a half. In 2005, there were about 30,000 cases of syphilis across the country, and that translated into about 300 cases among babies. So last year, the number of babies infected with syphilis nationwide hit nearly 2,100, according to the CDC, and that number could keep rising as more information is gathered. And there's no single explanation for what we're seeing on syphilis overall, but researchers have looked to methamphetamine use and inconsistent use of condoms as possible factors in the overall increase in syphilis. Are there any populations that are particularly vulnerable to contract and transmit syphilis? So syphilis is most common among men, uh, particularly men who have sex with men. 
But health officials have been particularly concerned about the parallel rise in cases among women of reproductive age because of the risks to infants. So when syphilis is transmitted to a baby in the womb, that's called congenital syphilis. And congenital syphilis is obviously an illness, but it's also kind of a symptom for all these broader societal problems. In L.A. County, up to two-thirds of mothers who passed syphilis to their babies said they were using drugs while they were pregnant, according to studies by the public health department. As many as a fifth were unhoused. Almost 30% had a history of being arrested or incarcerated. And 40% never got prenatal care. And these are also disproportionately women of color, which one expert I talked to described congenital syphilis as like a Trojan horse for all of our different social problems. Countries like Thailand and Belarus, they told the world that they were able to eradicate infant syphilis. But numbers in the United States kept going up starting in the mid-2000s, and then the pandemic hit. Yeah, and... Health officials have been really concerned about the ways in which the pandemic could be exacerbating this issue. In L.A. County, in particular, a lot of the efforts that had been launched or planned to try to attack congenital syphilis basically got put on ice. Uh, people who were you know, working on this issue got diverted to COVID-19, which, you know, for good reason. We have a pandemic. People were concerned about it. But it does mean that a lot of these other issues have not been tackled the way they need to be. So if someone who is pregnant has syphilis, um, they can be treated before the baby is born. It can basically prevent the baby from being affected. Depending on how far along the illness is, it can sometimes be treated with, you know, a shot or two of antibiotics. So again, on a scientific level, we have all the tools we need to stop this from happening. But the fact that we still see this, you know, really underscores the ways in which our health system is not reaching people it needs to. We'll be back after this break. Emily, before the break, you were telling us about communities that are particularly vulnerable to contract syphilis, and you talked to someone who was willing to share her story. Yeah, I spoke to a woman who had a really affecting story, and I think it really encapsulates a lot of what we're seeing in L.A. County. Um, she agreed to let us share her story anonymously in order to protect her privacy. So the woman I spoke to said that she had started using meth at a point in her life that was really overwhelming. Um, she had a stressful job. She was trying to get through school. She had a relationship that had gotten really strained because of her difficulties getting pregnant. And she described it, the drug felt like a ticket to freedom. When I started using, it took like the conscience away, like a, a guilty conscience of things that I was doing or the stressful life that I was living, it was almost like a relief for me. She wouldn't even refer to syphilis by name. Um, there's still a lot of shame um, and embarrassment around it. And so she would just refer to it as the S. The lifestyle that I was living, I didn't grow up in that lifestyle. I didn't come from that. You know, I, I always practice safe sex. I don't have many partners. And so I always try to take care of myself. So it's hard for me to admit that that happened to me because I almost feel like everything that I've done, everything that I led up to, um, I eventually ended up getting this, you know, even though I always tried to be safe, I always tried to be clean. So in her case, um, she never got prenatal care because she didn't realize she was pregnant. And she didn't realize she was pregnant in part because 
she had tried to get pregnant before and had a lot of difficulty conceiving. So a lot of the things that you would sort of look at and say, hey, you know, maybe I'm pregnant. She had kind of waved off and said, "Eh, you know, there's no way I could be pregnant. How did she find out she was pregnant? So she started having a lot of pain. I, at that time, when I started to feel the pains, I was more scared and I did want to call 911. But um, when you're using, you avoid the doctors, you avoid the clinics, you avoid all of those things. So um, it wasn't like the first thing on my mind. I was scared to go in in case they knew that I was high and I was using. And plus, I knew that I was going to be high and I wasn't going to be acting correctly. It wasn't until she was actually taken to the hospital and had someone put an ultrasound wand on her that she found out that she was carrying a baby. She described this really intense kind of series of news being delivered to her um, while she was getting her ultrasound, that she was pregnant, that it was a boy, that the baby was six months along, and that his heart wasn't beating. A guy came in and he was trying to take out my blood, do some blood work, blood samples. And I think that's when it hit me, finally. I was able to think. I played back in my head of what I heard, and I was like, she said a baby? Like, a boy, six months? And I think that's when it hit me. And then I started to cry. I started to cry so much, like I've never cried before. And the guy was taking out my blood, and, you know, I can tell that he was kind of sad, too. He kind of lowered his shoulders, and he was just trying to do his job as fast as possible, because as soon as he took out my blood, like, he left the room so fast. And I just stood there crying by myself. What could have made her or people in similar situations feel comfortable enough to seek medical attention before they're in a crisis like that? Well, I think this is the really big question that this raises for the health system, because obviously this is not a medical challenge. This is kind of a social challenge. So she was really nervous about the idea of going to the hospital because she was using drugs and she thought she might get in trouble. You know, she's someone who didn't know she was pregnant, but there have been cases in which women who were using drugs have been criminally charged after stillbirths. So that can be a factor why people might be nervous about getting medical care. So I think one of the big questions is how can our health system become more welcoming, more inclusive to people who um, are marginalized in those ways since they are people who are going to need medical care. And it's good for their babies if, if they do get medical care. You know, it, it's very similar to things I've heard from homeless people about hospitals. Um, I was out with a street medicine team recently, and a doctor told me that a patient of his had said, you know, I'd rather die than go to the ER because of the way they've treated me before. So if we don't, you know, ensure that people really feel welcome and comfortable, that they don't have to be afraid of those environments, this is going to continue to be a problem. This goes beyond the medical system too, right? I mean, this is bound up with the criminal justice system and also with the child welfare system. Some pregnant women may have avoided prenatal care because they're worried that the state could eventually take away their baby. I spoke with the Department of uh, Children and Family Services and they wanted me to emphasize that if someone had concerns about the welfare of a child, that assessment would happen after the baby is born. It would not happen during prenatal care. But given how many babies you know, with congenital syphilis do end up in the welfare system, that fear is not coming out of nowhere. Do health officials see anything that might get the syphilis eradication program back on track? Well, after our story came out, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors passed a motion seeking an updated plan to address the crisis. I think, first of all, they want to restore all the things that were derailed by the pandemic, right? So we need to be reopening clinics that were closed. The pandemic also 
derailed a lot of plans to launch things like there was going to be a new team focused on rapid response to syphilis cases. That's something that health officials would like to get started. But given that this is something, you know, this is a problem that predated the pandemic. And before the pandemic, there was a county report that came out that said, basically, unless we have very serious changes, this epidemic is likely to continue or worsen. So some other ideas I've heard mentioned, um, you know, one expert I spoke with said, we need to be investing more in street medicine, reaching people where they're at. California officials have also floated the idea of temporarily housing pregnant people with syphilis in order to make sure that they get treatment. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest questions is how do we find better ways to make sure that people feel really comfortable coming into a hospital or clinic? And the woman who lost her baby to congenital syphilis, how has she been processing everything that she went through? So she was someone who really had wanted a baby for a very long time. Um, so I think it, it hit her especially hard. I am sober now. So it's the grief, the loss, the uh, sobriety. I basically went cold turkey. I haven't gone back till this day. And so I'm still dealing with it. Um, I'm still talking to a therapist. It does become difficult at times, but um, I do take it day by day. And, you know, everything that happened to me, I take it as a lesson. And I definitely learned from this lesson. You know, thankfully, she's been able to um, get emotional support. She's gone to therapy. And I think she's been able to make some peace with what happened, including, you know, wanting to tell her story. I thought maybe syphilis was like not that easy to get. And then for for me to get it, I mean, knowing other people have it, you know, it's it, it has become a problem. You know, more and more people are getting it. I do believe that drugs do have a part in it as well, because when you're on drugs, you're careless. You're very, very careless. So I do feel like my story is helping. And that's why I finally agreed to do it. It made me feel better in a way. It took a long time for her to get the ashes for her baby, in part because she said at one point the mortuary called and told her that there was a hold on the cremation because the state had somehow gotten involved. You know, nothing ever came of that. She wasn't charged with anything. But again, it goes to that kind of fear that people have around these cases. I felt like I was grieving this whole time. Like, I felt like it wasn't over. And finally, when he's home with me, I felt like, okay, it's over. I could finally rest. You know, he's home with me, even though he's you know, I, I received my baby in this form. To me, it's the same. She described picking out this really beautiful urn with an angel enveloping a baby in its wings. And despite the pain and, and trauma she has around this, that at the end of the day, she has her baby with her. I don't know how to explain it, but it's the same for me. I feel like I have my baby here and I picked the most beautiful urn that I could find. And I even had dreams about it and I found it. And that's the one I wanted and I got it engraved. And it's just so beautiful. And I have them here at home finally with me. And I still think of it as a gift because, you know, I feel like God does answer your prayers and he did answer my prayers. And just the mess that I was in, I still received that gift and I still have that gift here with me. Emily, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, how the medical establishment disregards pregnant people who are disabled. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Ashley Brown, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb, and our theme music is by Andrew Eakman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. Gracias.